0: Okay, brilliant. Um, yeah, we're, we're into the Christmas season, aren't we? And what we're looking at today is the subtitle is Born for a Reason. Um, always difficult to come up with some different things for Christmas, but hopefully we'll be able just to explore one or two things today. <coughs> so the Bible suggests that we should be able to read the signs of the times to understand what it is that's going on. So we've got two Advent calendars now lit, um, so we know that Christmas is coming. It's a week closer than it was last week when we just had one lit, um, but there are those other traditional signs as well, aren't they? There's those other signs of the times that we've come to know and love. Um, the Apprentice and Strictly Come Dancing reached their conclusion, I think, next week. That bumper edition of the Radio Times, the only time we ever buy one, uh, comes out shortly. And then you can't go in the shops, can you, without being bombarded by that Slade record, you know, Happy Christmas, everyone. So just a few of the, of the Christmas sort of signs of the times, if you like, that we've come to know now. Now, for most of us, we've sort of gone through enough Christmases to know how it works, doesn't it? We sort of get a bit of time off work. Um, We have that big Christmas dinner. We have the rerun of those films that we've seen dozens and dozens of times. Maybe a game of charades or Monopoly, something like that. And then it's inevitably followed by those January diets where we try and take off all the weight that we put on with the chocolate. You sort of know it ends up, don't you? You sort of know what the end times is going to be, what the end game of Christmas is going to look like. So that's great when it comes to Christmas. So what about anything else? Um, Do you think it would sometimes be nice to know the outcome of something right at the beginning, when you start to know what the end game would be? (coughs) So as MPs prepare to vote on that Brexit bill this week, perhaps, depending on which paper you read, whether it's going to take place or not, the vote, do you think that Theresa May would have liked to have known what the end game was going to look like when she took office in 2016? And do you think that whether she knew that, it might have actually shaped her decision as to whether she wanted that job or not? Or think back for yourself. When you were at school or university, when you were taking exams and you didn't know what lay ahead of you, would you like to have glimpsed what the end game would have been, where those exams, where your education, where your life was going to lead you? Would that have made a difference? And what about if you go back even further? What about when you were born, you were given a name, and what only defined your life you were given a given a name that described who you are and what you would be, a name that set out your purpose in your life, your reason for being here. So, what if, you're from your very earliest thought or memory, you knew what your end game was going to be? <clears throat> now, I, for one, I'm quite glad I don't know that. But Jesus wasn't given that option. Right from birth, He knew His end game. In Matthew 1:21, we read that she, <coughs> that was Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. (coughs) Then this is further reinforced by our reading today. So we're reading from Luke 2, um, and it's verses 8 to 12, and it lays out Jesus' endgame at the time of his birth. In fact, it confirms what we already knew from the Old Testament, because Jesus' endgame had long been foretold. So let's read together Luke 2, 8 to 12 one of those mainstays of any school nativity that you've been to. So it says this, And then there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David a saviour has been born to you, He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So there it is. Jesus' endgame revealed to the shepherds by the angel. The baby born in the town of David was Saviour, Messiah and Lord. The endgame was revealed. Jesus' primary reason for being born in that town of Bethlehem, both in his life and in his death, was set out before the shepherds. Now, there was no details revealed. The shepherds were not told anything about Jesus' life to come, nothing about his childhood or his baptism or the friends he would gather at his resurrection, nothing about the miracles he'd performed, the teachings he would give, or of his death and his resurrection. All that was still to come, the twists and turns, those who would help Jesus and those who would hinder him, still to be revealed. But the end game was already known. The baby was saviour, messiah and lord. He was no random birth. He was born for a reason. Now across history there have been many stories of people who through acts of bravery or using their skills and abilities have saved the lives of other people. In the past few weeks we've just had the centenary, haven't we, of the, um, uh, the, the end of the First World War and there have been so many examples of different stories that have been shared <coughs> through bravery of people who've saved others. I just want to bring one or two different sort of stories of people before you now, Uh, maybe people you've not heard so much, people like um, this man, uh, Vasily Arkhipov. I hope I've got his name right. Now, with the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 reaching its most tense moments, there was a Russian nuclear submarine that was stranded at the bottom of the ocean. It was cut off from all communication, And above it, there was a US ship that was attacking it with fake depth charges in order to try and get the submarine to come up to the surface. So that submarine was cornered with very few options, but one option they did have was to launch a nuclear missile. They had them on board. And Russian protocol required that the three most senior officers on the sub must all agree before that nuclear warhead was launched. So they were the captain, the political officer, and the second in command. Two of those three were in favour of launching the warhead. But this chap, Vasily Arkhipov, alone, refused to give his permission. Now, who knows? That refusal to give permission might actually have saved us from what would have been a devastating Third World War. Or a completely different example. This chap, Richard Lewison. Um, Now, one of the biggest problems with surgery before the advance of modern medicine was that blood transfusions were actually almost impossible. Um, As you know, blood clots, when it leaves the... And it made transferring blood from one person to another actually incredibly difficult and meant that even during the most basic of surgery, people would tend to die because of blood loss. So in 1913, this chap, Robert Lewinson, found a way to preserve blood and to stop it from clotting when it was removed from the donor. So this led to the ability for hospitals to have blood banks and to be able to carry out transfusions at any time. So his discovery was probably responsible for saving the lives of hundreds of thousands, millions of people, who knows? over that time there are other people we could have included: Nicholas Winton who saved many Jewish children helping them escape from Czechoslovakia in 1938 Edward Jenner created the first vaccine Stanislav Petrov who in 1983 refused to believe his computer system telling him the Americans had launched nuclear missiles at Russia or James Harrison believed to have saved over two million lives by denoting his own blood which created which had a rare antibody that could stop the rhesus disease There are many, many people, for all I know, perhaps some even sitting here, that have saved the lives of another person. These are all people whose acts and skills and decisions should be rightly applauded. But even though they may have saved others, even Harrison, whose blood has saved millions, they are not the saviour. There is only one saviour. It was that baby that was revealed to the shepherds. We read this in Acts 4, 8-12. to Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, this is the man stands before you. That this man, sorry, stands before you, healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become one cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in John 14, 5-6, Jesus speaks himself to Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where, where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So whilst he was on earth, Jesus was very active. He spoke and he formed relationships, didn't he, with many people. He was a man of action and activity, doing loads of miracles. But his main purpose, his end game in coming, was to provide salvation for everyone who puts their trust in him. Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in 1 John 4.14 we read, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the saviour of this world. During his public ministry, Jesus spoke many truths. His teaching was so extensive that we build a whole system of theology around it. And however good all that was, it was only the background to what was his main purpose, which was to die on a cross for our sins. Jesus was born for a reason. He was born to be saviour. So what did it take for Jesus to be saviour? Ultimately... It was going to take death. But arguably, it was going to take something even more extraordinary, remarkable and challenging. The very thing that we read about this morning. To become the saviour, Jesus had to arrive on the earth as fully man. That which was infinite had to become finite. That which was outside of time had to become subject to time's laws and time's constraints. The creator was going to become the created. The sustainer became the dependent. And I think this, for me, is actually the single greatest and most profound act of compassion imaginable. It's one of those Bible truths that's just so remarkable, I just cannot get my head around it at all, or even come up with something that was a meaningful analogy. The closest I could imagine is that, as a human being, I'd be prepared to live and be constrained in the form of an ant. All those powers and abilities and capability for thought which I have as a man instantly lost as I grapple with what it is to be an ant. But even that analogy does not come anywhere near close to the reality of what Jesus was prepared to give up when being constrained in the form of a man, in the form of a baby, born to be saviour. I just can't start to imagine the frustration and the limitation that Jesus must have gone through when he was going through that. This was certainly no random birth. Jesus was born for a reason, the incarnation of God and the saviour of the world. Now, the Bible has some other stories of people that were born for a particular reason. Um, Let's start in the Old Testament and we'll just run quickly through the story of Esther. Now, at a very young age, little orphan Esther was scooped up by her uncle Mordecai and raised within the strict Jewish tradition. She lived amongst the displaced Jews forced into exile by the Babylonians because of their assimilation into the pagan worship of their neighbours. Esther finds herself living in Susa, a crucial Persian town at the crossroads of significant military, political and cultural importance and it was governed by King Xerxes. Esther's ascendancy to the throne is the ultimate rags to riches story. She was plucked from that Jewish obscurity into the court of the famous Persian king and there she became God's instrument. Now, here's a bit of a spoiler alert for those of you who not read it. By the time we get to the end of the story, Esther becomes a hero. She saved her country. She saved her people. Her husband, the king, adores her. And the cherry on the top is that her uncle Mordecai is promoted to become Persia's prime minister. No worries of Brexit for him, I assume. But the verse which I want to draw our attention to comes from chapter 4 and verse 14. This is Mordecai speaking to Esther. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and, your fa- uh, you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but this you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther's life had taken many twists and turns, some seemingly for good, some seemingly for ill. But they'd all come together at that one point. They all came together at that place, where she had the opportunity to save her people. Esther was born for that time, for that very reason. Now, she could have chosen to stay quiet, and God would have delivered the Jews by another route, but she chose to fulfil her destiny, if you like. She chose to speak out at that time. So let's move forward a few hundred years um, to the New Testament, and let's have a quick look at Paul, who was once known as Saul. So Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee in Jerusalem. After the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he swore to wipe out the new Christian church. In Acts 9.1, it says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. Saul obtained letters from the high priest authorising him to arrest any of those followers of Jesus that were in the city of Damascus. But as we know, on the road to Damascus, Saul was struck down by a blinding light, and Saul heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When Saul asked who was speaking, the voice replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul was blinded, so they led him into Damascus to a man named Judas. And for three days Saul was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Meanwhile, Jesus appeared in a vision to a disciple in Damascus named Ananias and told him to go to Saul. Ananias was afraid because he knew that Saul's reputation as a merciless persecutor of the church. So let's pick up the story in Acts 9 and verses 10 to 15, which says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. But Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So like Esther, Paul told was born for a reason. He was born to bring God's word and the name of Jesus to the Gentile people. And like Esther, again, he could have turned away from that purpose. But he chose to do that thing that he was born for. So what about us? Because the difficulty with using some of those Bible examples is that generally the people go on to do absolutely amazing and wonderful things, don't they? So Esther saved her people. Paul kick-started Christianity amongst the Gentiles. And sometimes it's not easy for us in our own lives to associate with those people doing those grand things. But even though we're unlikely to be involved in such momentous events, I still want to suggest that each of us has been born for a reason. That is a reason aside from being who we are as either a daughter or a son or a parent or a sibling, whatever it may be. All of those reasons are, of course, important in their own right. But I want to argue that even beyond that that God has reasons for all of us to be here at this very time. Like Esther and Paul, we were born for a time such as this. So let's just take the last few minutes this morning and let's just consider what some of those reasons might be. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, Jesus came to the earth, as we've already heard, to live amongst us. But we're already here. We're living amongst people who don't know him. And Jesus says that one reason that we're here is to be prepared to give an answer. One of the Christian teachers from whom I've learned a great deal is a man called Alan Hirsch. And he advocates that as Christians, we should live closely within our communities such that we take church to the people rather than invite the people to the church. And his co-author, Michael Frost, says that we need to get close enough to people so that our lives rub up against their lives and that they see the incarnated Christ in our values and beliefs and practices. So we should be close. We should take our part in the community. We should be an integral part of what goes on in Billericay and around it, and that through that, people will start to see the incarnated Christ. And that's what it's about, about being prepared to give an answer. It doesn't have to be in words. It can be through our values and our actions as well. Okay, a second reason can be found at the end of the section on the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, which concludes by saying, Now you, that is each of us, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So each one of us has a role to play in God's kingdom. Whatever your skills, our talents, our giftings, there is a, and insert your own name in the space, shaped gap for you in the body of Christ, waiting for you to fill it. And when we choose to fill that gap, the whole body of Christ functions better. We all benefit So taking my place in the body of Christ, however small and insignificant I might think it is, is another reason why I am here now. A third reason is that we are here to show love. In Romans 12, there's a whole bunch of things that we're asked to do to show love in action. So let's be devoted to one another, to honour one another, to keep our spiritual fervour when serving the Lord, to be joyful In hope, to be patient in affliction, to be faithful in prayer, to share with people in need, to show hospitality, to rejoice and mourn with those that rejoice and mourn, to live in harmony, not to be proud, to be willing to associate with people of low position. There are more but I was running out of space on the slide so I stopped. Every time we demonstrate love in action we're like Esther and Paul, we're choosing to fulfill part of that reason that we're actually here for. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, London City Mission were here, and Roger spoke of a man named Peter, who sat near the entrance of the Underground Station. And how moved that man was when after a couple of weeks, Roger came back, not to give him something else, but that he actually remembered his name. So that act of kindness and Roger's willingness to share with people who are in need and to associate with people of a low position was one of the reasons that Roger's life had developed as it had. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it may seem small. It's unlikely that that man, Peter, will ever save his people or be instrumental in the establishment of the Christian faith. But I think we can be in little doubt that 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 meeting was one of the reasons that Roger was able to demonstrate God's love in action. So take a close look at that list From Romans 12, what is it that particularly stands out to you? Is being faithful in prayer part of the reason that you're here? Is it showing hospitality or showing empathy with those who mourn? These are just some of the reasons why it is that we're here. So in conclusion, right from birth, even from well before birth, Jesus knew the end game of his life. He was born to be the saviour of the world. This was the reason for which he came. Now, we're thankfully unlikely to know our own end games, but the Bible does provide us with some pointers as to the reasons why we're here. To give an answer for the hope that is in us, to take our place in the body of Christ and to demonstrate God's love in action. We may not be the saviour of the world, but by our values, beliefs, actions and demonstrations of love, we may just introduce someone to him. Shall we pray? Father God, I just want to thank you this morning that Jesus was prepared to give up everything that he had in heaven to come down and to live as a man with all the constraints, all the limitations, all the frustrations that that must have come with it. Father, I just cannot imagine what that must have meant to be able to do that. And yet Jesus was prepared because of his great love for us to come down and be a man for 33 years and to live on this earth. <clears throat> Father, we just give you thanks that even from the outset, he knew what he was going to be. He knew what it was going to take. He knew that death awaited him and a significant death at that. And Father, we just want to thank you for him. We want to thank you for his life on this earth. We want to thank you for all the things that he said and did and the, uh, the people that he met and the friendships he formed. But Father, most of all, we just want to thank you that you sent him as saviour to the world. Father, I want to thank you that there is no other way that we can be saved, Lord. And as we get to Christmas time, Lord, and all the hubbub that goes on with it, the various things, Lord, the trappings that come with it, Father, may we just remember that born that day was a baby who was and is saviour of the world. Father, we just give you thanks now. We just glorify your name and we just praise you. Amen.